How does the activist land the corporate dollars to make change? How does the child leave a movement? Hello Greta, anyone. And how did the millennial convince the boomer? What do these situations have in common? They had make or break moments where influence was created and light bulbs went off. I'm Rebecca Nedelik, and this is Nuance of Impact, a podcast to get lost in the stories of those making change. Together, we'll chat, learn, and ponder the nuanced make-or-break moments that make social impact so impactful. Thanks for being here today to, as our next guest says, share space with us. I'm excited to welcome Khadija Triple. Khadija is a longtime community organizer, a Harvard graduate, and a true academic in the world of social equity and the decriminalization of cannabis. Khadija is an activist, and in the words of her grandmother, a hellraiser. But my most favorite part of Khadija is the paradox of her career. Khadija is the vice president of CSR for Cure Relief, the United States' largest cannabis company. Let me tell you something. Brands might affiliate themselves to activists from a marketing perspective, but I have never seen an activist at the executive level, unless they started the company themselves. You see, there's a whole different level of accountability, of integrity, when a brand chooses to bring on an executive with activism in their past, present, and future. Today, Khadija shares her perspective on all of the above and the ever-evolving path to the decriminalization of cannabis. Welcome, Khadija. Good morning. How are you, Rebecca? I'm good. How are you? I'm excellent. No complaint. Khadija, you are an activist and you are now a leading vice president of CSR. Yeah. Tell me about what led you there. Kind of the CEO of Marijuana Matters, a social enterprise that I launched out of a government school uh, here in the States. And so the idea was that I wanted to figure out as an activist, how can I improve the quality of quality of life for communities who have been under what I call generational poverty. And in trying to figure out what and understand the real problem or or create a solution, I had to figure out what the real problem was or is. And for me, the problem was connected to our criminal justice system. So many times when we're looking at how we help individuals who are in poverty, we create programs, programs to help them better themselves, programs to create, increase their education or their ability to to earn money. And those programs are necessary, but they are actually, they're only addressing one issue or one problem. And for me, the biggest issue or problem with folks who are living in poverty is that many of them are connected to the criminal justice system. And in the US, the criminal justice system right now, uh, by and large, is basically a a system that locks up people related to drug offenses. More than 60% of all of the arrests and offenses and folks doing time is related to a drug offense. And when we think about marijuana specifically, Uh, When 600,000 folks every year are coming home um, from a marijuana-related charge, we have got to have a different kind of conversation. And so that is what led me to be at CureLeaf because I've had this conversation in government. I've had this conversation in the community. And now I want to have this conversation in the context of an industry uh, in a drug 
in industry, which is cannabis. So that's where I got, that's how I got here. Cool. And so would you say you were talking sort of about how you had to figure out what, what was causing such high criminalization? Mm-hmm. Was that sort of where your education came into place? Cause I know you recently graduated from Harvard. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank is that sort of where that came from? So when I went into Harvard, I was not intending to study marijuana criminalization. Mm. So I talked about my anti-poverty stance, right? What is, it, what is it going to take to move people out of poverty in a systemic way, right? Not one-offs where we have this story about someone going from the projects to profits, right? How do we create real pathways where folks who are committed to, to getting out of poverty could actually do it, right? Uh, and I shouldn't say people who are committed to getting out of poverty. No one wants to live in poverty, right? So, but we needed pathways out and we had different, we needed different pathways. I had reached a point in my career where I wasn't effective anymore. So I was like, mm-hmm. you need to go, you need to retool. You need to figure out how you become a part of the solution and not a part of the problem. And I think as activists, sometimes we think the work that we've been doing for 20 years needs to continue. The work that I've done has been effective to a certain point and it was no longer effective for the the kind of impact that I felt like we needed to make. And so uh, I decided to apply to an Ivy uh, at the uh, behest of one of my friends. And I wasn't thinking that I would get in, to be quite honest. I'm a, you know, (laughs) Southern black girl from Alabama, you know, first in my family to even go to uh, any college Um, to be spending time at an Ivy was like a dream. And it came true. Mm -hmm. And it significantly changed how I viewed the impact that I personally could make. And it gave me an opportunity and an on-ramp to really, really explore this idea of how the collateral consequences related to drug offenses, arrests, and and convictions drove poverty. I say this all the time, like marijuana isn't a gateway drug to other drugs. Marijuana is a gateway to living a life of poverty because an individual with a marijuana-related arrest, conviction, and incarceration is 10 times more likely to live a life of poverty. And that isn't because he or she is not capable of owning a business, making good decisions. That's because you might lose your access to educational benefits, right? You diminish your opportunities in terms of workforce. You almost um, are guaranteed not to be able to get an apartment on your own, right? Mm-hmm. Or any kind of living situation because they do background checks for, for living. So if you have a drug offense, that denies you the right to live in an apartment on your own. I have yeah. two, okay, so as you're talking, I'm just like all the questions are coming up. So the first one, I guess, is effect, you were saying effectiveness. Right. I, I really resonate with that. Like, I think that there's a variety of sort of trigger points that can happen in a career or even just in a job, uh, in a single position where you realize you're like, oh, this isn't it anymore. I can, I can do more and I'm not tapping that potential anymore. Right. What was that? What was that moment for you where you were just like, I'm not being effective anymore. There's more to do. I need to pivot. Right. So I'll, I'll tell you, it was actually, um, six or seven months of, uh, personal strife for me. Uh, mm-hmm. back in DC. Um, you know, I've been, I, you know, I've, I've enjoyed uh, a career path that has allowed me to explore a number of different ways to make impact, whether it's as a political consultant, helping candidates 
who I believe um, really have good ideas get elected, uh, or whether it's working on issue-based campaigns that allow for us to uh, focus our mobilization and organization efforts to get um, initiatives to benefit uh, program support for programs that benefit individuals who are living in poverty. Um, none of those things were, were changing. Um, one story in particular out of DC, I don't know if you heard about it, but a few years ago, a young woman uh, was living in a shelter and she had a daughter. Her daughter's name was Relisha Rudd. And Relisha Rudd became missing. And I could almost cry thinking about the story, yeah. but it touched me so much that here was the situation where this family was in a um, shelter run by the government, funded by the government. I don't know, a nonprofit ran it, but it was funded by the government. Supposed to be this kind of um, safe, uh, haven. safe haven, right? Mm -hmm. To give people an opportunity to get back on their feet. And in the course of this, a young girl becomes missing. Like she's still missing to this day, right? And it tore our city apart. And, and I kept thinking about what are all the things that led to that? What, am, what part of, of it am I responsible for in terms, and not individually, but in terms of the work that I do, right? Uh, directing money, to nonprofit organizations. That was a part of my role at some point, right? I sat on a vetting committee and we would steer millions of dollars to organizations to help build and create opportunities for people who were vulnerable and more times than not living in poverty, right? There was this role, you know, who on the city council in DC or the DC council had I helped get elected or vouched for that was, um, that played some part in this and how this played out. So I just was really questioning, you know, kind of what role did I play in helping create systems that would allow for Alicia Rudd to be missing and gone from her family. It was just torturous. And that is the thing that said, you, we have to do something different because what's happening now isn't working. For the Alicia Rudds of the world, they deserve better, right? They deserve to, if, if they are in a situation where they need shelter and safe haven, it should be that. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't end the way Relisha's story ended. Do you think that, and I, I mean, I come from a not-for-profit background as well. I'm also on the corporate side. Do you think that, I know a big driver for me was also like the power dynamics, right? Mm -hmm. You've worked in government, so that's the policy side. You've worked in not-for-profits, you've dispersed funds. Do you, what led you to make that jump to corporate yeah yeah so uh people are probably not gonna be happy to hear this but um if if the nonprofit spaces had the the answers they i mean because there we have committed people there i know I, i've worked with them for many many years committed to making a difference and in some level making some level of difference i think the work that i i've been a part of has made the difference in individual lives but if we're looking for a systems disruption um, then we have to disrupt, right? Which means we have to disrupt kind of the nonprofit space. We have to disrupt government. And we also have to disrupt what's happening in uh, corporate spaces. Mm. Now, I am not one who believes that corporations are evil because they're corporations, right? I think that there are things that happen in the context of doing business that have negative impact on individuals and communities. 
And I was willing to get into not just any corporation, one company specifically, um, to address what I believe is um, an opportunity to do right by communities that have had so much wrong um, heaped upon them. And so for me, for this company, Cureleaf, at this time, I believe it is uh, going to have an impact systemically. And here's why. Um, Cureleaf right now is building and growing at, at a rapid pace. It is on tap to be the largest MSO in the U.S. And so if a leading MSO has the wherewithal to, to say, hey, there is some responsibility that we have to be good cannabis, and they set the tone for the industry, then we're talking about systemic change now. It's one company putting their money where their mouth is, making a commitment to uh, looking inwardly at the work that it does, how can that work mitigate harm and also improve social impact outcomes for communities that have been harmed by the war on drugs. That to me is a game changer. Mm -hmm. So that is the opportunity that I took, not just to work in corporate America, I've been avoiding that for 30 years. So I didn't, you know, I didn't necessarily need to come into corporate America, but I needed to test this theory that if we've organized in the community space and we are setting the, 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 the template for the policy discussion, which social equity is in the policy space. There's no doubt about it. If you look at what's happening state by state and when the national conversation comes, there will be a social equity lens to it. The writing's on the wall. Federal legalization will go through social equity. Mm -hmm. It's not possible. The community is organizing, right? We have people, um, whether it's you know the normals and the marijuana policy projects of the world, those organizations have been doing it a long time, but you also see these very specific jurisdictional state organizing efforts, which are starting to gel and, and have some coalitions across the country. So we got the government folks doing the community folks who's organizing inside companies, right? Mm -hmm. Where the where's the company organization that here's kind of our response to this and this is how we're gonna get ahead of it. And that's exciting yeah. to me. I think there's also I mean we just went through nationwide legalization in Canada. I mean a lot of public narrative was very focused on fear. Like it was very fear-based from a social equity perspective, very focused on, you know, driving under the influence, sort of taking any conversation that ever happened around alcohol. And now that became part of the cannabis space. Right. And so I think, you know, it's really fascinating the work you're doing because it's very, it's very preemptive, right? And it's addressing and creating influence on that narrative to say, let's let's create an intentional narrative around what the issues actually are and let's start talking about the solutions to those narratives you said you avoided going corporate america tell me more about that like why what was the reservation slash like i'm not doing that not now maybe not ever what was that about for you <laughs> so my undergraduate degree is in marketing management right and Get so out. Okay. I, yeah no yeah so i uh my undergraduate degree was at the University of Montevallo, the business school there. Um, and it was tough for me. You know, I had professors really questioning whether I should be in social work or something else. And in corporate social responsibility, just it, there was no class on it. I don't think there was a book. 
at the time, written about it. So I didn't have the language that we now have to be able to um, support the ideas that were in my head that, you know, no, business can be good, right? There is a, a way for us to do good business that have, have good outcomes, right? Um, but I remember NAFTA had to spend so much time understanding the North American Fair Trade Agreement. Mm -hmm. I knew that thing back and forth. It was my one of my thesis uh, to graduate. And in the course of that, there was also this conversation around um, apartheid and divestment, right? And so here I am at a business school talking and, you know, interviewing with all of these different jobs, I mean, these companies, and, you know, and my question in the interview is, you know, do you guys do business in uh, South Africa? And do you understand what the divestment is? There was nobody who was <laughs> trying to check <laughs> for me to join their company at that time. Even then, I didn't even realize I was an activist, to be honest. I just- You're like questioning knew. them. They're like, that's the, right? Yeah. In an interview, being like- <laughs> Here's a question yes. that you don't have the answer to. I'm going to ask it to you. This yeah. is, I'm interviewing you. Right. And I didn't even know that because, you know, that language just wasn't something that, you know, my counselors in the business school said. They're like, Khadija, because their job is to make sure that when you graduate, you have a job so that they can keep talking about how great their school is and their graduates go on to work at these Fortune 500 companies, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I am, uh, I was an African-American. I wasn't queer identified at that moment, but I was a woman and I was African-American. And the, the, the EEOC debates were happening, all of these things. So the school was like wanting to promote me, you know, African-American woman, you need to go so you can increase EEOC. I mean, they weren't saying that, but I, I mean, I get it. I got it. So I had interviews. Right, what is, what is EOC? Um, so it's, it's probably not EOC, the right term, but at the time it was commonplace to use things like quotas. We want to make sure we increase, uh, the number of black people who are applying uh. for positions. So equal opportunity kinds of things. Right. So, you know, it was the, it was the early late eighties, early nineties. And so it was a different time, uh, when I was graduating from, from school. And so, but I had interviews at really major corporations at the time um and that was the question that I was asking and in hindsight I was like girl that's why you got no callback I mean I got none nobody was like trying to interview me a second time and so for me I didn't think corporate America was the place for me even though I had a business mindset I loved the idea of business marketing and, and sales um but it wasn't the time so I was like okay well then I'll have to create other lanes for myself Hmm. And so did you jump directly into not-for-profit then? No, I actually went to work at a couple of smaller companies. I went to work at a financial company, but, you know, I wasn't moved by sales. I talked a lot back then, even more than I talk now. And so I could make my quota, but everyone around me was so driven by, you know, money and closing sales and it just didn't excite me. So I was like, this is not for me. So I found a, um, a small uh, marketing outfit that uh, put on uh, major cultural events. And so I was their marketing lead. So I was responsible for, you know, closing deals for um, sponsorships. So it, it's not surprising that I will find myself kind of back in this space.
where I actually am the person who does sponsorships and partnerships on behalf of an organization to make impact in communities. That's actually kind of the first real job I had out of college. And then I went back to school, fits and start. So, uh, cause I was like, you know, this degree in business ain't going to pan out. So I need to figure out something else. <laughs> so policy work started becoming a thing that made sense to me. Um, and then ultimately I, you know, started working in the policy space just as a consultant from here, there working in the nonprofit space. So, yeah. Mm, interesting. And with going back to Kiraleaf, when you, joined the company how and you sort of talked about how they're uniquely positioned and um how they've taken place in the conversation really taken place in the conversation taking space and how much of that do you think had to do with sort of leadership and who's at that executive table you know i have to be honest it's all leadership because you know this regulated market is fairly new uh we've seen some big players come and big players go and no one's demanding that CSR, social equity be at the table in an MSO specific way, because there's no federal mandate. All of this is happening state by state. And even when you look at the state regulations, there are only like maybe 10 states that have in language, in law and code or in a regulatory framework, uh, social equity language. So while we are making a uh, noise, it is not necessarily mandated in Oregon. It's not mandated in other states where some of these MSOs are, um, are operating. And so for me, for CureLeaf, it is all about leadership. Uh, Joe Lasardi is someone who is thoughtful about uh, the kind of company he is leading. He is um, very intentional about how we show up in the world and so uh, not only is it the leadership meaning the decision maker who is saying we will do this and that it is it is who is also being brought in to help lead the organization the ceo is obviously the head um but the executive leadership all having an understanding that this is important and wanting to know how we do it. Um, I think some of the best allyship I've ever seen is when someone says, I don't know the space. I'm going to step aside and be a resource. How can I be, this thing is important. I don't know how to do it. I don't always understand it. How can I be helpful? Mm -hmm. How can we use this role, this resource, this connection, this network in service of this agenda, right? And so I think that has been most helpful. I love that. I think that's, you know, corporate social responsibility, community investment is such a fascinating space because it's so much based on that executive committee, where their minds are at, who they are and what their motivations are, right? And I love that because sort of what you're talking about is that ability to say that it's important but the curiosity is where it comes from, right? It's right. saying, I don't know and I trust you to know. Right. There is no right way that I know of because I don't know and understand the path. I love that. I think that's so interesting. It's, it's the ability to not see themselves as the expert in this space, right? Right. right. And so in, uh, in a lot of activist spaces, we talk about holding space 
in making space. You know, I come, you know, I'm a part of the queer community and there's been a reckoning of the last five years with um, what does it mean to, to have a, a, a true umbrella community, right? Mm-hmm. Um, LGBTQ plus I keep going, um, has so many layers to it, right? And so who gets to decide what is the agenda for the LGBTQ community? Will it be white gay men? Will it be um, black gay women? Will it be, you know, who? And so, you know, the work, the way I approach this work has always been, and people say it, I, I was just having a conversation with one of my colleagues who works in a leading school district in the country. And, um, and we were trying to figure out, or at least she was, you know, going through the motions of trying to figure out what happens next year, right? And what plans do we need to put in place? What are we not doing well? And so I said, you know, take the most vulnerable family in your portfolio, profile that family out, Mm. build your policies and your programs to address that family's need and then figure out what you, where you go. Because if you do that, then you will build something that considers everyone. Mm-hmm. Because privilege is, is ranked, right? Everyone comes with some level of privilege. But if you get to the lowest point on that privilege profile mm-hmm. and you build programs and services, you can make sure you touch the person at the top because you touched the person at the bottom, right? And so, yeah. Wow. That's crazy. That's wow. I feel like, and you're right, even from a privileged perspective, even a corporation, when you're talking about policies and companies, it's the exact same thing, right? Do you adhere to the masses? Well, it depends who the masses are. Don't adhere to the masses. Start from grassroots. I also think from, you know, the community investment perspective, lots of companies go top down, right? right? And especially when they're starting, say, like campaigns or sponsorships, right. and they're looking at where do they intersect, a lot of program development is done top down. Let's start with government and then let's build down. And I always find, I mean, that's a great recipe for a 20-year plan, right? Mm-hmm. Like if that's if that's the goal, the 20-year plan, cool. But if you want to start from from <laughs> if you start bottom up, you're right. really able to create shifts and change that may be transactional in nature but evolve over time to create wide-scale impact that 20 year you're seeing change you're not seeing the beginning um super interesting and so you've moved around quite a bit as well you're in massachusetts now yes in new england (laughs) wow and what how do you feel i mean you're a community leader community organizer um you hold space in community is it been hard to move around so much? I mean, you ha- you're finding different communities wherever you go, right? Yeah, right. So, so when I saw that question, I thought, oh man, she's about to have a therapy session. <laughs> See, that's literally, you know what, my la- the last person, last, uh, it was actually a couple I interviewed, they both were in a business, and I was like, you know, if there was like a job description for a business therapist, I would be so, I'd be, <laughs> I'd be studying for that, I'd be applying for school, like, I dig it, let's, let's go there. Yeah. That's so, yeah, I, I think so. So the, I, there was another question in another interview that was very similar. Um, mm-hmm. So I grew up in Alabama and um, I decided to leave Alabama because it just wasn't a place where I could be as mm-hmm. a as someone who is thoughtful about um, 
the kinds of things that I participated in and the things that I wanted to engage in in conversations. Uh, not to say that that engaging in thoughtful conversation does not happen in Alabama, mm -hmm. because it does. But if you are black identified, woman identified, and queer identified, that space is small, it's exhausting. And um, you know, while I was there, I actually built community for that. Uh, I started a group uh, called the Lesbians of Color Locks. Yeah. I also had dreadlocks at the time uh, because I wanted to hold space. I knew what I longed for, and it wasn't, it didn't exist. And so I built it right. Mm -hmm. And so, so much of what I needed to feed me. I had to go find and build everywhere. You know, I just, I, you know, we're getting ready to do um, our, our pride launch and really talk about what it means to be in corporate America um, as a queer identified person. And, and I reflected on the, I, and the, the, the thing for me that, you know, I, until recently, I didn't get to show up whole. I had to show up in black spaces in the South as just a black woman. Right, mm -hmm. I I didn't get to show up as a queer woman, and in queer spaces, I didn't get to show up as a black queer. I just could be part of the queer community, and really not even queer. To very recently, a lesbian community, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I had to be lesbian because there was issues with being bisexual, blah blah. blah. Mm -hmm. So these lanes were just always forced me to to put an identity first or a part of my um, self first as opposed to just showing up whole mm. and so it is a skill that i've learned every so often just because of who i want to be and show up whole mm -hmm. and so when i go places ge 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 geographically when i visit places or i move there's just something innate about how i generate and find community uh, but it's been interesting in new england my community is not based on race or gender or the or my sexuality my community is the cannabis community right which allows for me to show up whole so there's wow. so much intersection in this space right around um cannabis culture and and you know the way i get to move and operate is you know it's been re really interesting it's probably free yeah. it is it is because mm. i i get to show up whole the thing that that connects me to that community is a social justice yeah. uh, consumption of cannabis and um you know this de this desire to see cannabis really you know grow no pun intended into this powerhouse of a plant that just shifts everything um so i was thinking about COVID 19. COVID 19 in many respects has done what activists cannot do in 30 years yes um disrupt systems of power capitalism the kinds of conversations that that we are now able to have are because of this pandemic and i want to talk to a group of activists to kind of think about kind of how what I, i'm not i'm not suggesting that we become a model COVID 19 but what of COVID 19 can we learn and apply to the way that we organize and mobilize and make traction and um because you know COVID 19 has no regard for race gender or anything else as activists we need to stop we may should care less about those things mm -hmm. and figure out kind of what the commonality of our our our, our missions are and get to work so anyway yeah. 
That's, I, I feel like that's a common in, you know, in professional world, a lot of the not-for-profits I've been connecting with just saying, Hey, how's it going? Where, you know, where are you, where do you stand right now? And a lot of what it's about is efficiency. Like they've been forced to be super efficient. And if anything, there's a real light Sean, Sean shined <laughs> on, on issues and what the real opportunities are. And they've, they've been forced to pivot in a really interesting way. I mean, I think that would be a really fascinating conversation. You know, when I was thinking this morning, I was all nervous for this interview. I was like, Oh, my oh really? I was oh, totally. Like, yeah, we're buds. Yeah, totally. I think, you know what I think it is? When I listen to conversations like this, or when I get to experience conversations like this, I'm able to like, just withdraw and learn so much from the people that I get to talk to. And I really was starting to think about, okay, well, what is the goal of this conversation? Like, what do I hope other people could gain from this conversation? And I think what I find so fascinating and interesting about your story is corporations like don't take on activists. They don't, there's, there's a lot of compromise there. Right. And for the, for the exact reason of what you talked about in your interviews, right. When you go back to the eighties and you said, why didn't I land in corporate America? And you know, you're asking these really probing questions and, Big corporations, especially, you know, from a PR and communications perspective, strive to always have the answers. And when they don't have the answers and when they're challenged, they want to put you in a corner. Right. And I think that conversation has changed now in that activists are also influencers of culture right. in an increasingly polarized environment. And because of that, corporations are attaching themselves from a brand only perspective onto activists. Mm -hmm. There's a whole different level of accountability when you bring an activist inside to start creating ripples in how an organization is running. Right. There's like, there must be a pivotal moment there for you, either in the decision to go into corporate or even in, I don't know if it was the offer or what, what for you, if you think back to how you landed where you are, like what was that, what was that moment for you where you're like, okay, and, and maybe not the, mo the moment that helped you make the decision, but maybe the moment that was like, okay, I'm doing something different. Like this right. is different. So I, I go back to even when, um, so there's this thing at Harvard at the Kennedy School where you have 15 seconds to introduce yourself to your colleagues, your cohort members, uh, faculty and staff are all there. You have 15 seconds. Mm. Um, and you can and, and, and the guidance is you, that 15 seconds is to set your intentions about what you want to have accomplished by the time you finish your program. And, um, in that, and they gave us two weeks. So that is, it's a big deal, right? 15 seconds is all you get. And you're standing on kind of the premier policy stage for the country. I mean, this is where it's the forum stage is where all of the major policy conversations are had. And for me, I was like, you know, I've come out in a lot of different ways over my life and my career. Yeah. Um, but to have this conversation around cannabis um, at an Ivy by a black woman, uh, I just thought, that probably is insane. But I go back to answer your question when the pivot came. If I, if I wanted to do the same thing that I've been doing for 20 years, then I probably would have the same level of effectiveness. 
Mm. Right. And so I had to think differently about what it means to show up in service of my mission. And I could, I could hold on to the idea of what corporate America showed itself to me 20 years, 30 years ago, or I could stand in my power and show corporate America. And in this case, Cureleaf and corporate cannabis, just how powerful me and my community are. Right. Mm -hmm. Because I can see a big picture. I don't necessarily believe that there is an either or. And if I really believe that, then I had to step out and prove that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I proved that government had a role to play in social equity. It, It is not so much that nobody else was doing this work. So I don't want people to walk and say, Oh, she, she started social equity. No social equity as a concept is actually fairly old. Um, in the cannabis space, uh, it is, um, only five or seven, seven years old. I mean, the first social equity ordinance was in Oakland just a few years ago. It wasn't, it's not like it's been around in terms of the legislative process, but I was a part of those conversations and I feel confident that there are toolkits and understanding of how government should play. Whether or not it's doing it or not is not necessarily a question, but there is a conversation that's happening, and I have been a part of building and shaping that conversation. Mm-hmm. The same thing for community. Um, you know, I was talking about we way before it was popular for people. When I decided to pivot and say, hey, here's an opportunity, are you going to take it? I had to question and challenge whether I thought I had imposter syndrome, because that's a real thing, right? Could I do it? Am I the one to do it? Am I the one to take these ideas, these thoughts, the things that you've mulled over for years, and now you have an opportunity to make them real? Then who are you? So there's the, the personal showing up inside this professional landscape. And so for me, the pivot was, you know, are you who you say you are? And is this the work that can be done? If it is, then do it. And so the answer was, yes, do it. Holy cow. And Yeah, and I can't say it's not without some level of sacrifice. That's what I was going to ask. That was my next question. (laughs) Because there is sacrifice, right? Like, you know, in, in making those decisions, there was probably A, an element of risk, and B, to endure these spaces to endure making change, there's sacrifice. Absolutely, absolutely. So COVID-19 has exposed something, and not exposed, I think everybody understands that community is important to me. Anybody who knows me knows that community is important to me. And COVID-19 has done something, or at least exasperated in many respects, what I was trying to steel myself against going inside an industry player. And that is loss of community. I don't get to show up in spaces anymore as Khadija, the rah-rah-rah activist. People still see that, but I am also attached to something else. And as much as I want to say, it's still me, I'm still the same, and which I am, I'm still that chick. Um, But I also have something else that I'm wearing with me that identifies me as the industry. And so I, I miss the moments and days when I can show up in a conversation as myself and not seen just as, and not with whatever people think about Cureleaf, right? Mm-hmm. I can't, I won't change 
in few months what people have as a lived experience with any company or with corporate cannabis, right? Mm -hmm. And so I have to endure mm -hmm. what that means when I show up in spaces that I've traditionally been in, right? And so, yeah, you know, yeah. but that's okay. Because I, I believe that this is worth every bit of whatever personal sacrifices that I will have to make to be, um, to be a game changer. And do you think that you are judged for those sacrifices as well? Like when you talk about community, I mean, you were the activist, the rah-rah, the, the typical descriptor words of an activist are opinionated, loud, <laughs> probing, right? Like these right. are, and they're also, those are very freeing, powerful words. Right. Okay, the way I think about it is that ability to show up with your stream of consciousness, to be able to say what's on your mind. Do you feel, and you're, what, you're, what I'm hearing, and correct me if I'm wrong, is you're also saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that part of myself over here. Not fully, but I'm going to put it semi-aside because I believe that creating change requires influence. And to influence, I have to create amount, an amount of trust in order to create that influence, in order to change opinions. Do you feel like you're judged in your community at all for those sacrifices? Yeah. So um, it's twofold. So I have been on conversations and, and literally in the same breath as someone was asking me to utilize my role at Cure Leaf in support of something they wanted. They question, <laughs> they question my loyalty to the community. I was like, I don't, I don't know how to, 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 and I'm very clear. I, you know, I, I, I studied business and I am a business minded person. I've had a couple of businesses, some that have failed and some that have done significantly well. And I will say this that I can, I can parse out a good business opportunity from a uh, social justice, you know, thing, right? Just because, and I've said this before, you know, and I have four sons, right? And, and two of my sons have, um, are part of the cannabis community and have criminal records related to cannabis, right? And so I come at this from a mom, someone who has been, you know, there's a lived experience for me. Um, but that doesn't mean that because my son has been involved in a criminal uh, activity related to marijuana, that he is equipped to run a marijuana business. Mm. That, that those things aren't synonymous. I think that that there is something old individuals and communities that have been uh, disproportionately impacted. Uh, carte blanche to run a business inside of campus cannabis is not necessarily my personal thought, right? But I think for those people who are business minded, who have an idea about what could happen and are willing to do the work that it takes to be in this business should be given opportunities to do so. Barriers should be eliminated for them to participate because the barriers are stacked against them, right? So I am able to, to, to parse out those things. But the, 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 to answer your question, it's, it's very interesting that the judgment comes from, and I heard this today on a call that, um, you know, there, there are folks who question whether, you know, you, 
your loyalty is to you personally or to the movement. And I was thinking my loyalty is to making impact. And if I decide that the only way to make impact is one road, then I think we're doing ourselves a disservice. I am of the mindset that we need all parts of our activist community to get it done. So there are those who will be, you know, I would say this in the queer movement. There are those of us who will be outside waving flags and marching and talking about burn it down. And we need those people. And then there are some folks who are not going to be out there, but they're going to write a check to make sure you can get out of jail when they lock you up for burning it down. Right. And then there are those who will be in rooms where we will never be making some decisions about the things that we care about who will be fighting for us in the way that they can fight for us. I'm not going to tell that person who's in that closed room that they are not as valued as the person who is burning it down because it takes all of that for movement work. You know, if I, you know, so, so you know, I'm, I'm from Alabama. So, you know, this idea that ML King soloed was the civil rights movement is a lie. There were so many players, people that you will never know who were doing things that were essential for the civil rights movement to have the kind of impact that it had. Some folks you'll never know about, the drivers, the money keepers, the backgrounds, all those people that no one ever wants to talk about because those jobs aren't glamorous and maybe those people weren't always you know, down enough, but they were necessary. And so I don't, I don't mind, I don't care if the, if the story writes me as a activist or anything else, if, even if it never writes my story, mm -hmm. if I leave this world having made the significant impact in changing um, how communities of color who've been impacted by the war on drugs are able to, to live a life different than the ones that they have now been prescribed, yeah, I'm, I'm good with that. I'm good with Man. it. That's, yeah, I mean, like, that's a whole, other, we could just dive right into, the, like, that could be a, an interview of its own. I honestly, it's, um, yeah, I think I was telling you, so, uh, of course, we were introduced by your boss, Jason White. Right. Yeah. Uh, I met Jason at, pardon? I call him J-Dub. J-Dub! Oh, I love that. I changed that on my phone. When I first met him, it was, like, at a conference, and I've shared this with you already, but, um... It was essentially, I, I had just come out of, I just got married, my husband is white, and I had had, you know, two members of my community, my close friend group, who are both black, my, and like I, I my mom's, my mom is Ethiopian, her family mm -hmm. is uh, spread all over the world. I grew up in a very um, white environment, we'll say, and my two closest friends um, had sort of challenged some choices I had made about our, our wedding. And I had just come out of this conversation. I ended up just like being, Jason was the first black man that I saw post, post that conversation. I was like, you <laughs> tell me how to live my life. And uh, he was super gracious and kind about it. And, you know, friendship has formed from there. So I'm really thankful to him. But one of the things we had talked about was it, it was a very parallel conversation to what you're talking about right now and how we all play different roles and all each of those roles has merit right right and our journeys have merit and it's um 
the reason I wanted to share that is because it was personally very difficult. Like it was a, almost an identity crisis. Right. Um, so, I mean, have you always had that level of clarity around those conversations? Absolutely not. I have this conversation quite honestly, um, particularly as a member of the LGBTQ community when we were fighting for marriage equality long before it actually became legal. I mean, I'm talking about when, you know, you could still, I mean, I was in, one of my biggest fears with being out in public about um, being gay was that I would lose my sons because our youngest son is 24 now. So this is 20 years ago. And even now, still today, in some states, it is a challenge being able to, to make sure that you can keep your children, right? The law isn't protecting us evenly as parents. And so my biggest fear was that we would lose our children because we were out. And I remember, you know, having a come to Jesus moment with my wife, who was my uh, girlfriend at the time. And we had four sons. Uh, 20 years ago, the youngest one was four and the oldest is, was 14 or 15. So all of them were under age and we could lose them should uh, their fathers decide that they wanted to make a big stink or any family member for that matter that would question um, our parenting ability as lesbians. It's a real parenting, thing. Parenting competency because of, wow. Right. Yeah, I mean, because... It, in some places, you can't adopt kids if you're gay, right? That's like that's today, mm-hmm. because it's, it's seen as an unfit environment to raise children in. And so, when you ask that question about, you know, have I been that clear? I haven't always been this clear. Um, and I, I, I was challenged by Black people in general, who thought that I was showing up too queer, right? In, in faith communities, when I would say, I need my faith community, the community that has always been there for me as a black person, to show up for me in these queer spaces. I need you to fight for my rights to be a lesbian on paper and in real life, not just behind closed doors, right? When you know no one else knew. Like, I needed to be okay with being out. I needed to have protections from a legal standpoint, whether it was employment or parenting or whatever. And I felt like um, I should be able to make that ask of the Black community. So I went to the Black community consistently, and I never stopped going. Uh, Even when I was told to sit down, this is not a Black issue. Even when people were saying, oh, you know, when Black ministers in Illinois were like, you know, we we ride with the Klan on this one. What? Was that actually said? quotable um and so again this is 20 you know we're talking 20 years ago and it doesn't seem like that long but the reality of it was it was a scary time and um and so i've been attacked by my members of my race community before for being too something else and and so that helped me kind of build this strength about kind of what my convictions are, what's right, Khadija. And if that means that you are constantly challenging those around you, then that's just what it means. But it's the right thing to do. I just, I've always had this clear sense of right and wrong, no matter what, even when it could potentially be detrimental. I didn't get a job. 
could potentially lose my kids. I did lose contact with some members of my family. My mom, it took my mom a very, very long time. Um, we're good now, but there were, you know, quite a few years where we were not good. And um, it was challenging. And for her, it was probably that same, those same fears, right? Like you're putting, you're putting your kids at risk. You're putting yourself at risk without sort of seeing why the fight was worth it or why those sacrifices, those personal, those fear sacrifices, right? You're, you're sacrificing that sense is I'm going to be open about who I am. And the risk to that is not only do I live in, in fear in a lot of circumstances, but I also, yeah. Well, you're right. My mom actually gave me something that, you know, I keep in my toolkit now when I'm thinking about changing communities, right? Um, because we talked about it. And she, I remember her saying to me, you know, well, when you came home and you came out, that meant everybody was out. Well, I didn't even know nothing about being gay. And all of a sudden, I'm the mom of somebody who's so gay because you were gay everywhere. You were gay at church and you was gay at work and you were gay in the community. But I didn't, I didn't want to come out. So every time you came out, I came out. I wasn't ready to come out. And she didn't have the resources either. You know, my mom was born in the South like me during a time when, you know, those things weren't necessarily talked about. She didn't have the language. She didn't have the support system. And so it's really interesting. My grandmother was quite different. You know, she was, I I think I get my hell raising from my grandmother because she just was a different breed. She didn't know it. I mean, she didn't know the language. She was just like, I don't care what they're talking about. You know, go and find you one of them lesbos at church. I mean, you know, and I'm like, what are you saying? She's like, well, just come on, find you one. She's in her head that, you know, this is what we're going to do. But my mama, on the other hand, I'm very, I mean, it's very real, right? And I take that to heart now when I go into communities, when I'm in, in executive situations where folks have lived a life that is not necessarily um, one that would put them in close proximity to the kinds of communities that um, have been negatively impacted by the war on drugs. Like, that's a real thing. Uh, when I say social equity, when I was saying equity first, people thought I was like ownership. And I was like, no, it's not a finance term. Let me, let me break it down to you, right? And so I think about my mom saying, you know, you, you, you have a frame of reference, a point of view. You came and landed it in this space and then you didn't give me any information about how I'm to use it, right? Mm-hmm. How do I come out? All you said was I'm gay and that was the end. Wow. And so um, when I am engaging with individuals who may not have the same frame of reference, point of view or understanding, I have to break it down and walk people through it. And some people think that that's, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. You know, people can think for themselves and they don't know they're doing wrong. In some cases, they don't. Wow. Yeah. Um, I, it just makes me think of my mom as well. Like my mom, my sister also came out in high school and actually my mom kind of forced it. She said, she looked at her one day and she, I think she'd already come out to me. We were getting ready to go somewhere. My mom's sitting in the living room. We're standing in front of the mirror, you know, making sure we look cute before we head out. My mom looked at my sister and said, I think you have something to tell me. My sister said, what? And she was just kept pushed like, yep, you have something to tell me. Come on. And my sister said, well, you already know. And she said, I don't care. Tell me anyway. And so she kind of drew it out of her. And, but I wonder if from her perspective, you know, being a part of the Ethiopian community, I'm sure she would resonate with a lot of the same things. And for her, there was probably a lot of fear around it as well. Mm -hmm. Do you find, I mean, you're constantly fighting or enduring. Mm-hmm. in these spaces, right? You're, 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 A, you're being 
projected on in a way, right? Here are all the reasons that you should be afraid. Here are all the risks that you're creating. And you're making a choice based on what you think is right or wrong to keep going on that journey. Do you find, like, what is the role of fear for you? Does it exist for you still? Yeah, so I don't ever want to be in a place where fear is not a consideration. I think fear can be an asset to make sure that, that you do a gut check right? Uh, if I am moving, I'm like, oh yeah, there's no, there's no consequence to this or there's no so-and-so, so-and-so. I think I'm, my ego is moving and not the pragmatic, impactful intent, right? And so fear does play a, a role, but I'm not immobilized by fear anymore. I used to be probably about 10 to 15 years. I'm not good enough. I shouldn't be asking for, oh, my thoughts aren't, you know, somebody I'm sure has already thought of this. Oh, blah. you know, all of the reasons why um, imposter syndrome is a very real thing for mm-hmm. folks. So fear is still a part of, uh, has a role in my professional life and my personal life. Because, um, you know, I do have, um, you know, in the, I've made some really big assumptions in this role with Leaf that uh, the the industry and Cureleaf are ready for this this additional way to show up in their work. And that if we do it, that we're gonna have significant impact. Those are the assumptions that I'm moving and operating with. Mm-hmm. And if I am wrong, you know, <laughs> you know that, that's a fear of mine. Um, but I won't let it stop me because if I don't, if we don't, explore these opportunities to make social impact in this way, then what? Mm-hmm. And you know what the status quo is already. And I think, I mean, evolution is not a linear path, right? It's full of turns. Right. That's sort of what gets you there. It's sort of from your perspective, and you talked about it with COVID-19, you're doing everything you can to expedite that journey. Right. So the impact happens sooner. So the challenges that people face and the barriers and the inequities are diminished right. <laughs> or lowered at the very least in a rapid, at a rapid point, because if the industry is going to move fast, then so should the change. Absolutely. I love that. Right. Do you find that fear you're talking about, does it ever play a role of anxiety for you? Like, is there ever an- anxiousness there? Or is it just like, these are the risks. This is, you know, here's the gut check. Here's the, this is my projection. <laughs> Because <laughs> I like for my person, I whenever I'm thinking about those things, I'm like, here is the risk to this. These are the negative consequences to that, and I have to worry about those negative consequences because they they also impact you, right? Your um, your trajectory. Absolutely, I think there is a bit of anxiousness um, that resides in me in general. Period, and I no longer run from it. You know, I don't. You know, there was a time that I would think that people who were um, you know, I, I, I probably shouldn't share this joke, but that's not a joke. It's a real story. Like there is someone in the political world that I just revered, mm. admired, idolized. It was amazing. And the, I mean, I read everything about this person. I emulated my behaviors, my decision-making in a way to get me close to this person, right? Um, And when I had the opportunity to be close to this person in their home, in their kind of wheelhouse, just in awe of the way in which they were commanding their space. And then I get 
an opportunity to be face to face and have a one-on-one conversation with someone, with this person. And they have the most incredible halitosis in life. I, I never smelled kind of bad breath in this way. And I know you're like, where are we going with this? In that pivotal moment, I mean, I idolized this person. They became human. Yeah. Cool. Human. And that moment on, I was like, girl, you got this. That person who, who's done an amazing amount of work in ways in which you, and I still idolize to this day. But what I now know to be true is that each of us has that same capability. And that no matter if something makes you anxious, if you're a little bit af- afraid of failure or success, that it is okay. It is a part of the process. It happens. Each level of something that you're trying to attain for yourself involves anxiousness and some fear. And if it doesn't, you need a gut check, right? Mm -hmm. But don't let it stop you. It shouldn't stop you. It's just there as reminders of how important the moment is. And it is for you to stay on task, to not let things fester. Don't procrastinate on your dreams. Do not give up on your vision. Um, and so, you know, I'm not necessarily trying to have a sermon right now, but I'll tell (laughs) you, (laughs) you know, people will tell you that they have it all figured out. They've had it all figured out from day one. They knew this, knew that they're lying. (laughs) People who are making major decisions. I mean, you just look at the person who is the leader of the free world right now. He don't know what he's doing, (laughs) but that doesn't stop him from being the president. Right. Uh, I would hope that people might not use that as an example, (laughs) but if there's something to be gained from this, it is to say that you have the potential Mm -hmm. to have the kind of impact and realize a dream for yourself, no matter what it is. Mm -hmm. Don't let fear and anxiousness stop you from doing it. Do it anyway. Find support groups, find mentors. I cannot say enough how important mentors are to to people who are trying to do something where there is not a path forward. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like, I think I said this to you before, I feel like I got a machete in one hand and um, and a a fire lighter in another. Because, you know, I'm in a forest and I'm trying to clear paths. So I'm macheting, cutting over here and burning shit down over here and all the same time trying to keep the tribe safe and looking back and forth. But you know, what? whatever, that's just what we have to do. Yeah. And so from your perspective, like kind of pulling this all together. Sure. When you think about, because I swear, I'm like, I swear when I ask these questions, I'm like, I have, I'm going somewhere. I swear I'm going somewhere. I think what I'm curious about is, you know, we talk about fear, we talk about anxiety, we talk about you know, your past as an activist and well, not even past present as an activist and being in the corporate landscape from your perspective, what is the role of the activist in a career? And I say this because what I find so fascinating and interesting about your career is that you've proven that there, that you can be an activist, you can have opinions, you can fight for something, you can fight for change. You can be polarizing in some ways and still end up in a position of power, of influence, that's not just in community, but in a career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be politics. Right. Right? It doesn't have to be like, you don't have to be a, a senator. 
Like right. you, you can end up in a position of power and a position of influence and still be an activist. And I think that's something that has a lot of power for a lot of people. What is the role for you as you look at your landscape, your environment? What is the role of the activist? Yeah, to activate wherever he or she or they are. That's, that's the definition of an activist. They activate. activate and so they activate on the things that they believe are the right things to do, right? And so if you're an environmental activist, you might find a number of different ways to activate what your true uh, calling or mission is. And for some of folks, it is as an uh, environmentalist watchdog, right? That, there's nothing wrong with that. But if we honestly believe that the only way to activate is outside the halls of power and influence, and that's not to say that if I am not in corporate America, that I'm outside power influence. There's a level of power and influence that activists have in the in the nonprofit space, that they have in the policy space, in political in the political space. So we all have to activate our power wherever we have it. But it doesn't have to exist outside of corporate industry. Like that to me is a misnomer. We need more activists in these spaces with a frame of reference. If we have activists who are actually running Facebook, Twitter, Amazon, I don't know what kind of footprint could we have, right? How could we use, how can, you know, and I, I've heard people, you know, and I've made this argument too, that perhaps capitalism isn't, it needs to die. Well, until it's dead, then what? Do we just wait and suffer through? while we wait for capitalism to die? Well, you get the killing capitalism, if that's the role that you can play. And while you're killing capitalism, there's some people who still need to eat and still need to be housed, still need to be educated and have access to health. Because while you're fighting the capitalistic dragon, there's still stuff that needs to happen. It's not in a movie where you just, you're going and you're fighting a dragon and you don't see anything else. I mean, there's their lives at stake for the work that we do, quite honestly. Um, and so what are you doing in your career? And I'm asking this because I know we've talked about it, but what do you feel like you're doing to keep that door open and saying there is a space for activism here? And yes, when you guys are burning down capitalism, I'm gonna continue activating in this area so I can continue to take care of my tribe, our tribe. How are you keeping that door open? Yeah, so one thing is I'm not taking anything personal because it's not about me. And the other thing that I'm doing is, um, so I, I think I talked about Hansel and Gretel a lot over the last couple of weeks, but sometimes when you, um, when you have a path and you've charted it, there, there are spaces where only certain people are going first, right? You can't be the first. Once the first is there, there is no other first. What is the role of the first? Part of the role of the first is obviously uh, charting the path. And sometimes the path can get muddled and people can't always see it. So what am I doing? I am creating crumbs, whole cakes, if you will, whatever, so that when the next activist 
comes, they say, oh, this is this is the way. Because if if you, if every activist has to come and fight a new path, then we have all of, and not to say that these other paths aren't important, but we have got to um, widen the path. I joked on one interview and I was like, yeah, I'm over here opening doors, unlocking, I mean, opening windows, unlocking doors, because we have to dispel the myth that corporate cannabis can only reside as evil cannabis, right? Mm -hmm. It can only be negatively impacting our community. I want to open doors, raise windows, cut walls, and give folks insight in on how this stuff is actually working so that we can create some more paradigms, right? I, I can't stay in this binary good or evil. I, I just can't. It just doesn't work. If I am constantly saying that the only way that you show up is as the evil player, then I don't give you any room to be anything other than an evil player. I want us, I, I want to do what my mother wanted me to do, was to give her room and space to figure out what role she can play in my coming out and in supporting me as a lesbian. To hear my mom tell my wife that she loves her, that she welcomes her, you know, Shoni, and that's my nickname, what, what is Robin doing, how are the boys, those are game changing for me, right? And it, and it happened because I never positioned my mom as an evil homophobic person and, and never gave her any other room. I did the same thing with the black church. I, I resisted inside the LGBT community when they wanted to frame the black church as the most homophobic institution. Absolutely not. You can't do that because then you're not giving people any other room. You've defined them and that's the, that's the box we're going to put them in. I don't see cannabis as only being able to be bad cannabis or bad business uh, operators or evil doers. I have to create another lane for them to be in and show them it is safe in those waters. <laughs> Go, grow good cannabis, make a ton of money and do good. So, yeah. Khadija, I'm so grateful for your time this morning. Your mentality on how you're pursuing change, I think it's, it's not only refreshing, I think it's going to create incredible movement. And you don't even need me to tell you that. You know that already. I appreciate it. You have yeah. a good day. Thank you. All right.